Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 22nd, 2018, the Delete Facebook edition. We are live in Portland, Oregon at a sold-out Revolution Hall. I am joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine to my left. And to her left, these Portlanders see an empty seat, an empty couch seat. And that is a couch seat. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And well, you might boo. That is the couch seat where John Dickerson should be sitting but is not. New York was socked in by a blizzard today and John was unable to get out. But not to worry because we have a super substitute. We will be joined for the second two-thirds of the show, or the last two-thirds of the show, by a guest purpose built for our topics, Farhad Manju, the brilliant technology columnist of the New York Times. So, Emily, I don't know about you, but I, for one, am really glad to escape the bubble of the East Coast, to be outside the fetid miasma of the Beltway... To breathe, to breathe real American air. <laughs> Happy to be here in Portland. I've just spent a day here, but I can just see it's a regular American town. <laughs> it's clear to me it's the kind of place where the best donuts in town are at Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> and the best coffee, too. Hey, I sent you a donut yeah. recommendation from my nephew. Yeah. Where? Where yeah, the, Blue Star, exactly. It's the kind of town where the roads are still, you know, they're still there for pickup trucks, not bicycles. Where when you talk about a microbrew, they just hand you a small Budweiser. I really feel like I'm really connecting with America, don't you? <laughs> You're making fun of these people, and, you know, they're, all, they're being so nice and friendly to us. I'm not joining you. Uh, <laughs> I'm making fun of myself, mostly. No, I'm making fun of you. <laughs> On this week's GabFest, is President Trump going to sack special counsel Robert Mueller? And if he does, would it provoke a constitutional crisis? Then we will get to the bottom of the very creepy Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal, and we'll advise you on whether you should delete Facebook. Then we have mass protests, urban bombings, youth-fueled social protests. Are we in the middle of the 1960s? Is this 1967? And we just haven't realized it yet. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And it is strange to announce this here in the PDX, but we have tickets for another live show. Our St. Louis show still has seats available. You can hear from this Portland crowd how fun it is to be at a live Gab Fest. Thank you. Yeah. 
so join us on May 2nd at Sheldon Concert Hall in St. Louis. We're going to have a great guest, Jason Kander, the former Secretary of State. Oh, yes. Liberal Lion, the former Secretary of State of Missouri and Senate candidate, uh, will join us. You can get tickets for that show at slate.com slash live, May 2nd in St. Louis. As we tape on Wednesday evening, Robert Mueller remains special counsel in the Russia investigation, but I personally would not bet the $37 in my wallet that he will be in the job next month or even next week. Oh, that's so scary. Really? Yeah. Okay. Let's, we'll get to that. The president appears to be revving up. He's powered by a high-octane fuel of Fox and Friends and his own narcissism, revving up to get the special counsel sacked in order to paralyze the investigation, which appears to be getting closer and closer to areas that Trump does not want it to get close to. Notably, Mueller this week subpoenaed Trump Organization documents, which is a red line for the president. He also submitted a first set of questions and preparations for possible interview with the president. And the president also egged on Attorney General Jeff Sessions as Jeff Sessions fired Deputy FBI Director Andrew McCabe just 26 hours before he was set to retire. So, Emily, what what is the evidence that Trump is getting ready to sack Mueller? Is there persuasive evidence that he is doing that? I think the strongest piece of evidence was his lawyer, John Dowd's statement over the weekend, floating as a trial balloon the idea that it was time for Mueller's investigation to end. There was response to that. There was pushback. Dowd said at first that he was speaking for the president and then claimed that he wasn't. He backtracked. But, you know, obviously that was a trial balloon that was out there. And then there's the fact that this weekend Trump was tweeting directly in criticism of Mueller. And that's new. He's, you know, obviously been told not to be confrontational in this way with Mueller by his lawyers. They've been cautioning him for months about that, and he decided not to take their advice anymore. And I also feel like there's this whole moment right now, and Rex Tillerson's firing is part of it, of Trump kind of shrugging off people who he seemed to respect, that Earlier in his administration, people who had of their own stature, like Tillerson, were part of his administration, like Gary Cohn, people who were, they, Trump didn't make those people. Now we're in this moment where it feels like, you know, Mike Pompeo, um, and while Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, has seemed fairly independent, these are people who Trump appointed, and it's certainly true of his lawyers. And so if he's kind of shaking off the constraints of people who are outside of his power, who he seemed to respect, that would be another reason to to try to fire Mueller because he's just deciding he's going to follow his own instincts. Right. I mean, he, there are a couple of other examples of that. I mean, he sued Stormy Daniels, which is a strange thing for a sitting president to do. Right. So and, opening, essentially acknowledging the affair and also opening himself up to producing evidence in this suit. He's hiring Joe DeGeneva, who is this really a kind of feverish conspiracy theorist as one of his lawyers. He now has so many lawyers. He has, he has more lawyers than he has cabinet members. Right, although there was a moment this week where it seemed like Ted Olson, at least they were trying to recruit Olson as they had over the summer, and then Olson said he didn't want the job. So he does, still doesn't have lawyers of um, tremendous stature. Do you think that one reason that he... He, he does seem to be sort of pursuing his own ends. He's, doing, he's following his own instincts. And part of it is that there actually haven't 
been consequences to him for following those instincts, right? Yeah. Because he's not being held to account by the Republicans in Congress. Right. So the Republicans in Congress are doing a dance. You know who, who I bet cannot really dance? It's Republicans in Congress. <laughs> I would bet that, like, if you had them dance, they would not do a good job. Well, they're Just, not doing a good aside. job, actually. You're right. Even metaphorically, that metaphor- I remember when Tucker Carlson was on So You Think You Can Dance or <laughs> Dancing with the Stars, <gasps> and he was the worst that. person ever to be on Dancing with the Stars, which made me think that maybe kind of... It Middle-aged white guy endearing. conservatives are not, true, true. Are not good dancers. True. Anyway, it's a sorry. more endearing moment, though. Okay, so, right. So a couple of people spoke out, and it was important that Paul Ryan at least issued some sort of statement from a spokeswoman. And finally, Mitch McConnell said something. But basically, the line they're trying to take is like, oh, don't worry, that's such a crazy thing to do. He'll never do it, and therefore we don't have to plan. We don't have to pass any legislation that would protect Mueller. It's just obvious. I mean, you know, I think Trey Gowdy actually... So, to pause for a moment, isn't it interesting that people who are retiring from Congress have become truth-tellers? So, Trey Gowdy's statement over the weekend, he basically was like, well, if you're innocent, then you should want this investigation to be thorough and fulsome more than anyone else. But obviously that's not how Trump sees this for whatever reason. And so the fact that the pushback from the Republicans has been muted is, uh, uh, it would presumably embolden him. If, if you say that and your conclusion is that Republicans cannot speak up, then, then you, the natural next step is that Trump will fire Mueller and nothing will happen. Because so I, tr- I can't see Trump submitting to an interview with Mueller, he, w- no, he or not a real. He wants to do it, right? The thing with the interview seems to be that his lawyers don't want him to do it. You don't believe that? Do you think he really would submit to questioning from Bob Mueller, as a man who's fifty times smarter than he is and knows <laughs> and well, knows much more about what's going on in this case than but Trump does? Trump doesn't think that Mueller is fifty. T- I mean, Trump thinks he's fifty times smarter than Mueller, at least on some level. In yeah. some moments of the day, he thinks that. Um, But I think you're right that finding the conditions in which he's actually going to do this interview is very different from, you know, bloviating about how willing he is to do that a couple of months ago. You know, look, the other thing is that it is clear, or maybe I should say, the news has become, I feel like it is raining news about things related to this investigation. The cast of characters is expanding dramatically, right? So on Wednesday in the New York Times, there was this amazing story about this fixer guy, George Nader, who was working with the UAE, and also it seems the deputy finance chairman of the Republican National Committee, Elliot Broisky, they had this whole it seems fairly obvious, um, I was going to use the word conspiracy, deal going on of um, the UAE sending business to Broisky in return for Broisky helping out and getting the UAE's interests in front of Trump. And there are all these emails of Broisky's that have come out in a big hack that are really pretty damning. So that's just like one more point. I mean, if I was mapping this on a wall, I would be, there are just so many things to keep track of. And the the more it expands, the more it seems to take into account Trump's business interests, all these other people's business interests, the way in which they're essentially trying to manipulate Trump and Jared Kushner and use the presidency to advance their own interests. All that's very dangerous. And there is an argument that it fall, at least the Republicans can try to make it, that it falls outside of Mueller's original purview. And then there's been this effort, I think, by Trump in the last few days and by some Republicans in Congress, too, to go back to this notion that Mueller has a conflict of interest, which in the statute for the special counsel would actually be grounds for firing him. How, how would Mueller be fired? Because 
uh, Sessions presumably cannot do it. So Rod Rosenstein would have to do it. Rod Rosenstein has shown no appetite for doing it. He's the deputy attorney general because Sessions has recused himself. Well, and this then, is where the specter of Watergate looms in a way that's actually quite useful for preserving Mueller's role because Rosenstein presumably would resign. That's the honorable thing to do with the Saturday Night Massacre from Watergate you go to Noel Francisco, who's currently the Solicitor General. Um, I don't think we know what Noel Francisco would do in that role. But I do think that one of the main things protecting Mueller is that Trump cannot fire him directly. And also, firing Mueller doesn't technically end the special counsel investigation. Then you have to appoint a lackey to, like, screw it up. Or you have to Is it a lackey or a minion? Uh, either one will do in this it, scenario, What does the statute say? It says... <laughs> Someone I can fully control. Um, right? And so there are these different steps. There's a like lickspittle paragraph, too. It's ambiguous there. Yeah. I mean, look, the, and, and then one does have to hold on to a shred of hope that in the actual event, the Republicans would suddenly get some religion about the rule of law and about Robert Mueller's independence and try to act in some way. <laughs> you don't believe I mean, it. So there's, this, there's a really wonderful piece in The Atlantic by Connor Friedersdorf no flaming liberal, saying that if Mueller is removed, Trump must be impeached. Not Because setting aside all of the actual crimes that Trump might have permitted, that this would be uh, a case of him clearly putting his interests, his personal private interests above the interests of the country. The interests of the country are to prevent interference in our elections by foreign hostile powers. And the fact that he would neuter an investigation of this simply to protect himself is a, is a classic example of a president not doing, fulfilling his duty to the Constitution to protect the interests of the country, and therefore any honorable Congress would act to impeach. Can you imagine an impeachment? Clearly, if the Democrats take the House, they will impeach Trump, which will be, in my view, a, a, that will blow back against them. It will not be a good move because... There's no way he's going to get convicted in the Senate. Well, but if he fires Mueller, then I think the whole impeachment calculus for the Democrats come November would change. But I do see this alternate reality in the um, conservative commentary, right? I mean, I'm sure you're seeing it too. And the argument is this investigation should never have started. Trump tweeted Alan Dershowitz, not normally um, a right-winger, but someone who is playing that role on television very successfully right now saying that the investigation should never have begun, there wasn't probable cause to start with it, it's become a huge distraction. There are these calls to open a second special counsel investigation of, you know, the Clinton email FBI investigation and of Andrew McCabe's role. And so when you're in that alternate reality, it just seems like if we can just lift this cloud, if we can just dispel, just make this go away, the, the president will be able to set restart. Just, you know, continue on with his political life and we'll just sort of pretend that this meddling didn't happen. And the more I see that theory of the Mueller investigation being peddled about, the more worried I get, because it's obviously laying that groundwork. Well, it was, there was this quite disturbing Senate hearing on, what day was it? On Tuesday, where the Secretary of Homeland Security came in to testify about what was being done to forestall future meddling in the election. And basically... You know, she said, oh, we're doing a lot of stuff. And the senators were like, not really. It doesn't seem like you're doing a lot of stuff, including not just Democrats, but Republicans as well. And so there is, there's what, what ultimately what is at the heart of this investigation 
is not necessarily anything wrongdoing by the president. It is a foreign power interfering in our elections. And the fact that our government is proving uninterested, incapable, incurious about trying to stop it is that to me is like incredible and disturbing, independent of whether any of the politics of it. Right. And one of the huge problems we have is how tangled up these stories have become, right? So there is no room for Trump to forthrightly and forcefully call for protecting the country against Russian meddling and this kind of cybercraft because he can't admit that it happened the first place. And so that whole problem is politicized in a way which normally would just seem like this foreign power, this foreign power who's like our longtime foe who Republicans hate the most. And But none of that's coming to play. So what did you think about this whole Trump calling Putin and congratulating him and then the speed with which the the message do not congratulate from his national security advisors leaked. Like, what is going on there? So the former CIA director, John Brennan, said uh, he thinks the Russians may have something on Trump. Uh, I mean, I guess you've probably said that, too. But it's interesting because he's the former CIA director. He's a little more red yes. than the rest of us, probably. Uh, I mean, I think we all know Trump loves authoritarians. And he, he, you know, what does he care that an election is unfree? What does he care that that Putin is a, you know, a murderer who's committing uh, assassinations on the soil of our allies. He likes tough guys. He likes to play around with tough guys. And I'm sure Putin is a very canny person and flatters that sense in him. And so I I found it highly unsurprising. Although it's so un politically astute at this moment. Like, if there was one moment to seem like you weren't in bed with Putin, it was this week. And that did make me wonder if John Brennan does know something I don't know that would give more evidence to to that statement he made, which was kind of an incredible statement. One more thing. Can I ask you one more thing? Andrew McCabe, complicated story, right? We know that the inspector general is out there about to report something, which we've been told a million times that we don't have the report, is not helpful to Andrew McCabe, that there was a lack of candor in the way in which he answered questions about how he authorized FBI officials to push back on a story at the Wall Street Journal that was not flattering to him, right? So he's not a... That was too confusing. I thought I said that so clearly. You did say it clearly. It's the case of all of this stuff, which is that once... It's like, uh, I I think, not not to reuse an analogy, it's like when people explain blockchain to you. It's... (laughs) I don't get... Please don't ask me to do that. I I can't do that. Maybe Farhan could do that. (laughs) It's like that. Whenever anyone tries to kind of walk me through one of these. But go ahead. Ask ask your question. Well, just to add on to my long statement before my question. So now there's news that Jeff Sessions was being, that McCabe authorized an investigation of Sessions by the FBI. Sessions, of course, is the person who fired McCabe, which as far as I can tell was just a flagrant violation of his own promise to recuse himself from everything related to the Russia and Clinton investigations. Okay. So we have all that happening and McCabe gave this Uh, you know, unsurprisingly, a very strong defense of himself and his record. So in McCabe and Comey, it seems like we have these figures who are flawed, right? I mean, I think that Comey completely messed up when he talked publicly about um, his suspicions about Hillary Clinton in the process of saying not to indict her. Seems like McCabe did something fishy too. And yet it also seems like those screw-ups are a pretext for firing people who we needed to do their jobs and we're basically doing their jobs. So is it is it that simple? That's how we sort of make our peace with this? Or is there a bigger problem here? I, I keep struggling with thinking like, 
wait, these guys, somehow I'm supposed to be outraged and like protecting them, and yet they also seem to have kind of blown it. Well, are you, have you uh, gone through your entire career as a journalist and never made a mistake, never embarrassed yourself, no. never said something stupid, said something you regretted? No, and now I'm afraid you're going to come up with like no, I can't think 10 of anything. examples. No, so, I mean, yes, I-, I have made egregious errors for sure. So I think, the, you know, we... They're, okay, so somebody's the head of the FBI, they're the deputy head of the FBI, they're whoever they are, we all know that they're just as inclined to egomania, to stupidity, to, you know, they have blind spots and they are subject to social influences in the same way all of us are. And why should anybody be seen as a saint? Why should anybody have a perfect record at anything? Right, I think that has to be right. Okay. So, Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. Today's Slate Plus segment is going to be a Q&A with the audience here at our Portland Live show. Go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a member of Slate Plus today. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Before we begin this segment, I am pleased to welcome New York Times tech reporter Farhad Manju. Hi, everyone. We're so glad you're here. Oh, thank you for coming. Did you bring some, like, super new AI technology uh, that's being developed in Silicon Valley? It's flying around. No, I didn't bring anything. Are you surreptitiously stealing everyone's personal data? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, I mean, that's what we all do in San Francisco. Yeah, that's our thing. (laughs) So we have a scandal in which one, uh, one of the major players goes by the name of Alexander Nix. Another is a professor named Dr. Kogan, but he sometimes goes by Dr. Specter. That's kind of the baseline for this James Bondian story that we have. The Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal has metastasized very, very quickly. What uh, began as a story in the, the Observer, I guess, and the New York Times uh, has blown up a tale of a brilliant, if sleazy, plan by a conservative data company to collect voter data on Facebook in order to help Republican candidates. It has spun into a much larger controversy about Facebook itself, as well as about the willingness of people at Cambridge Analytica and their Republican allies to do just about anything to uh, advance their cause and influence the election. So, Farhad... Is the Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal a scandal about Cambridge Analytica or a scandal about Facebook or about something else entirely? About us, the users. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's about all of those things. But I think the Cambridge Analytica part is because there's those videos that make them look terrible, that's the, the kind of the most sensationalistic part, but also I think the least important part. I think everyone who's sort of studied the election agrees that 
Cambridge Analytica and the kind of the work they, they actually did for the Trump campaign wasn't that important, kind of didn't, you know, change the outcome. There's sort of a lot of other things that people did online that would probably have much more impact than what they Such did. Such as what? The kind of hyper-partisan environment that Facebook and Twitter created, possibly Russian interference, which was a different thing from this, you know, it may have been a different thing from this Cambridge Wait. Analytica thing. We don't question know. Question mark. That is um, an interesting question. We don't know if this. it's related, but so far it looks like, you know, that that was a separate thing. Um, just, you know, Trump's tweets may have had a more effect. You know, what Cambridge Analytica did and what they claimed to do and, like, the weird part about possibly hiring you know, prostitutes and other things, it doesn't seem like that actually had an effect. But I think it does, um, I mean, so it's terrible for Facebook because it leads into, you know, it suggests, um, it, it kind of confirms all of our fears about Facebook. One is this kind of, baseline fear that we've always had about Facebook, which is that they're constantly surveilling us, they're very slippery with our data, and they're not very transparent about things. This story first came up in uh, 2015. They kind of looked into it at that point, but it didn't become a big deal, and um, it doesn't seem like they did a lot. And, you know, if, if they didn't do anything two years ago, and now they're kind of claiming to do a little bit more, you really have to wonder, you know, what they're doing with our data. It just kind of confirms everything that you've always worried about about Facebook. There's that great line about poker games, which is that if you look around at a poker game and you don't know who the sucker is, you're the sucker. And <laughs> this is a, a similar, I'm not sure who coined this, but if you're, if you're not paying for something, you're not the customer, you're the product, yeah. which is what people, I think, have taken a really long time to realize about Facebook. Right. And so, I mean, we're the product here. And, but also, they've always been claiming that, you know, that they were this kind of bridge between us and the marketers, right? That they, they had our data, but they wouldn't give our data to, to the advertisers and to third parties. They would, you know, target you, but kind of keep your data in this, um, you know, very safely. And, and what we found here is they actually, you know, they had this program up until 2014 where they would let app developers plug into uh, Facebook's data and and get information about you if you signed up for the app, but also all of your friends. And Who didn't it, sign up for anything. That's yeah. the part that, you know, really gives me pause about this particular iteration of data breaching. Right. I mean, we could all be friends on Facebook. I, I signed up for some stupid personality app and then like all your data goes to this company, which is it's just insane. We had the spectacle. So Mark Zuckerberg has been uh, holed up in a, you know, a tastefully, <laughs> tastefully a decorated fancy. bunker. Right. But he emerged to Took say that Facebook was going to take, they're going to, he regrets the mistakes and they're going to really take measures. They're going to be better. They vow to be better, which is perhaps the 34th time in the oh, last yeah. few years that Facebook has come out and said, oh, we're totally changing. We're taking it to heart. Why should we take this one seriously? Well, I mean, I think a better question is, are we going to be different this time? Because we've always, all those 30 or four other times, I mean, the reason Facebook keeps doing it is because from the very start, the cycle goes like this. There's some huge thing. They push beyond where they know their users are, are comfortable with. Everyone is outraged because Facebook is like an outrage machine. So, you know, everyone, it's easy to get outraged on Facebook. And then he puts out a post that's like, we're sorry, we're like really taking this to heart. Um, the first one was, um, we hear you calm down, breathe. That was like... They said that? Yes. yes. 
Yeah. You remember that was over like their introduction of newsfeed, right? right. It's yeah. like really old, but it's so patronizing. Yes. When you, I don't remember experience. I don't think I cared at the time, but right. every time I've read it this week, I've been like, grr. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's sort of a template that they've followed. And after they do this thing, after they apologize, everyone just goes back to using Facebook. And, you know, it doesn't really... The thing they care about is that uh, is their monthly user numbers, their quarterly user numbers, and they always go up. Sorry, they went down slightly in, in North America in the last quarter. But, you know, globally, people keep using Facebook more and more. More hours per day, more people use it. And if that doesn't change, I mean... This cycle doesn't change. Between 2011 and 2013, when I was working on the book I wrote about bullying, I did a fair amount of reporting about Facebook in this sort of earnest, naive way. I don't report on companies very much. I had never reported on a tech company, but cyberbullying was such a problem and Facebook was so central to that problem that I had to try to figure it out. And what I found time after time in dealing with them was that they didn't believe the criticism, wherever it was coming from, was valid. I just felt like I would get these blank looks. And the first time I talked to one of their spokespeople at the time, she said to me, oh, Emily, I'm so glad to talk to you. I want to hear about all the nice things you're going to write about. And I like almost dropped the phone. It was so <laughs> strange. I'd never had anyone say that to me as a journalist before. I want to hear about all the nice things you're going to say. Like, yeah. Why would that be your assumption? But it was totally their assumption. And when I ended up talking myself um, into spending a day at, the, at you know their vaunted headquarters, a little bit shadowing the people who were trying to deal with all the incredible torrent of complaints about bullying that Facebook gets every day, they, I, every time I brought up criticism, it was just like blank faces around the room. And they kept trying to tell me about their efforts to fight child pornography, which were real and had nothing to do <laughs> with what I was there for. And were so underwhelming. Like, yes, okay, the most illegal thing in the entire world right. you have figured out how to address. Congratulations. Right. But that's what it was like. Sorry, I'm not done ranting. I know that you're bored, but I'm going to continue. Keep going. Keep yeah. going, so, sister. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing about that day was that I came to them with the voices in my head of all of these principals and school guidance counselors who just wanted to be heard by, right, by this giant company, which was making their lives so difficult. And they wanted some way in which they knew that Facebook could help with various bullying crises, right? Facebook can see a hotspot. They could, if they wanted to, figure out an algorithm where they could tell whether a crisis was pending at a school. They were the opposite of interested in this. And instead, what they had done was to essentially do some cyber version of greenwashing, where they had found these little organizations that all had, like, children or safety in their nonprofit title and gotten them on board, given them a little bit of money, created some like essentially fake board. So then I wrote about that for the New York Times. And I don't know if you remember that, but it was like a nothing. If you went and found this piece, it is like a milk toast piece. I mean, it's not complimentary, but it's not some big expose. And they freaked out about this piece to the point that I called you like in tears on yeah, a I Sunday, remember, yes. right? <laughs> because they had like uh, the piece had closed. The Times Magazine closes. You can't get it back anymore. But they didn't believe that. And they had 
after like all the vetting and fact-checking decided that I had made some huge error, called me on a Sunday morning to yell at me. And I called Farhad in a total panic. And you were very reassured. You were like, no, it's really fine. Don't, like, <laughs> don't lose any more sleep. But like, this is how they do. That is their level of defensiveness about nothing. And I just feel like I see that over and over again. They have all drunk their own Kool-Aid at that company. Okay, I'm going to stop. It's that. not that. It, it, yeah, it... It's not just that company. I mean, that's how yeah, Silicon Valley, Valley is. Right, that's right. like the the if you start a company in your dorm room and you believe that and and everything works about it, right? Like you are suddenly one of the world's biggest companies. Never mind uh, that you compared women to barnyard animals as your way of getting started. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, it, you you they they're sort of. Um, you know, infected with this blind optimism that can never, like, they can't even, I'm, I think they thought you were going to write nice things about them because they only think nice things can, can flow out of their platform. But they can't believe that anymore, Farhad. Right. It's like, not, they've been through enough of these. Well, I mean, I think that in the last year and a half, they've started to realize a little bit that um, not just good things come out of Facebook and, and all, all the other companies, but it, it came as a real shock to them. Like, uh, it, they, you know, over the last couple of years have really struggled to figure out how to respond to this idea that um, their technologies are not, like, the best thing in the world. Can I ask a sort of related question about that, which is that... As a, as a civilian in this, I've always thought Google and Twitter are good and Facebook is bad. No, is that wrong? Am I wrong terrible, to think that? Maybe. Yeah. I, I mean, you're wrong. You're wrong. Yeah. Definitely wrong. <laughs> Look at all the antitrust monopolistic tendencies at Google. I mean, Twitter's just not big enough to be as like evil, but they do. I mean, they're. Their lack of enforcement of their policies against all kinds of harassing hate speech, et cetera, yeah. is like an amazing thing to behold. I think that all of them suffer from this problem, which is they they want to be everywhere. Um, they want to go for like global scale with the fewest resources that they need to put on protecting, you know, the platform because their their entire thing is like. They're software companies. They think that, um, you know, everything scales digitally and you don't need to have humans involved. You don't need to have kind of like any kind of um, checks in the way or as few as possible. And their business models wouldn't really work if, you know, if you needed like the number of people that you need to kind of look at all the bullying cases That's or look right. at everything else. Right. Um, there was no way to, to cleanly do it to scale. And so right. they just didn't do it. Right. So I think it's, I mean, I, I really look at the business models here. Like, if they're ad companies, you really have these terrible consequences that flow out of them that they can't really solve with their business models. You don't see as many terrible things coming out of Apple. Um, it's because they sell luxury products to rich people, and rich people, you know, demand a level of service and, like, care, and, uh, and that's sort of the trade-off there. Well, and we're not their product in the same data-driven right. way, right? I mean, Apple would have happily had, if they had been so lucky, right? But that's just not the direction their business went in. So then, to me, this keeps going back to what you said earlier, which is obviously so true. As long as Facebook's metrics and user numbers are going in the right direction, they're going to continue to assume that they're right and we're wrong, that like they're drinking their Kool-Aid and the whole world is too. So what's to stop them? I mean, what's to stop them is we should use Facebook less. Like, <laughs> I, I, I re that's the only leverage we have. Like, all right. So, so 
I, you tweeted this week, you don't even have to delete Facebook. You can just use it a lot less. Tell me more about that strategy. Yeah, it I seems mean, awfully tempting. I, I, think the, I, I, I think calling for deleting Facebook, I mean, if you can delete Facebook and, and be fine in the world, I think, I think you're sh- you should. I mean, don't, don't use it if you don't get anything out of it. But a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's, it's sort of like cars, right? Like it's part of the infrastructure of like the modern economy. For some people in the world, it's just like the internet. Um, and so they can't delete it. But you can, you know, not use it as much. You can, you know, talk to people in other ways. Um, and, and, and if you stop using it, if you use it less, they will notice and they will respond. I mean, the only thing... I use it not very much and I get desperate messages from them. Please come back. Yeah. I mean, they, um, I mean, one of the things that's happened is as Facebook has gotten bigger people have stopped posting as personal stuff. Like, so they, they post, you know, one of the reasons pe- people post a lot of news articles is because they stop posting stuff about their friends and family because, like, it's just kind of not the place to do it anymore because it's so huge. Um, and so uh, they have noticed, like, users user like the way that people engage with it is different and but the thing is they also own instagram so like that's where people are doing it now so there it's uh and one question for like if you're deleting facebook is do you also not use instagram and then if you're not using instagram should you also not use youtube and twitter because there's also problems on those like i think you can make a pretty good argument that twitter was as consequential in the election and perhaps negatively consequential as Facebook was. So if you're not using Facebook, should you also not use just all social media? But maybe you don't have to be intellectually consistent. Maybe yeah. you pick one thing. Right. You can pick. There's like a bouquet in front of you of rotten flowers. And you just take <laughs> one of them out the and then you bad. see yeah. how that feels. Right? I feel like we shouldn't let the can, perfect be the enemy can of we, the good Can here. we go back to actually, just going back to Cambridge Analytica for a second, because there is this, how true is it that that targeting via Facebook can work and and shape your actions? Because Cambridge Analytica had these incredible claims that, you know, with 30 likes, they would know more about you than your mother knows about you. And we all, at least, I think many of us have learned that new word this week, psychographic, Mm -hmm. which I had never heard that word before. Cambridge Analytica's claims were, um, you know, inflated. But I think in general, I mean, that seems to be how politics is done now. It's, it's certainly how the Trump campaign and the, and the Clinton campaign raised a lot of money that way, through targeting on social media. It's not as clear if they changed minds that way, if it sort of actually, you know, affected the, the politics of it. But that's where political consultants are going. That's sort of how Cambridge Analytica's claims you know, could come true at some point. Like, that kind of thing seems likely impossible. I mean, isn't it also possible to think of it as just one thread in this fabric we're weaving about not just persuading voters, but perhaps more importantly, mobilizing them? So you micro-target, you figure out, you know... I, I agree with you that it seems exaggerated, this notion that, like, once you know if someone what someone's favorite band is, then, like you target because it seems like the messages are actually all fear and paranoia based and that's how you do it but you know to the extent that you see all of the hyperpartisan or f- kind of fake news circulating as being connected potentially to micro targeting then it starts to seem like you can imagine it being more influential well i remember back in 2000 i don't know if it was 2008 or 2012 but when the obama campaign was doing this everyone in this audience was like, that's great yeah. that the Obama campaign is using right. Facebook to really, you know, reach out reach to the, its reach vo- its voters, voters and right. mobilize its voters. So was that the same thing or was that different? 
I think it was pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Except that they didn't take a lot of people's harvest data through a No, I, I mean, I think app, they did that they too. Did. Yeah. <laughs> it just was fine. We didn't care at the time. Right. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't think that... So the thing that Cambridge Analytica did was they sort of saved the data after they weren't allowed to use it anymore and they used it for other purposes. But the Obama campaign got that data when Facebook had that program. And so they were able to do the same thing. Are we then having a partisan reaction to it where the left and the center is like, holy shit, now that we realize it's elected Donald Trump, it's not okay anymore? Or have we just become more jaded or perhaps more sophisticated and more worried about all this surveillance? One reason people were happy about the Obama campaign doing it was for partisan reasons, but also it was like shiny and new and we didn't imagine the terrible stuff that could come out of it. And now we do know that it seems really terrible to imagine a world where politicians are, you know, slicing up the electorate in, in such, uh, in ways where you don't really know what they're telling other people, they're sending, I mean, the ways that these campaigns work is they can send you messages, they can target ads to you, and other people don't really know, have any transparency into what messages are being targeted to whom. Um, that seems really bad. Like, it seems bad to have anyone kind of influence, you know, politicians or companies kind of influence the society in such a targeted way. But why? What's wrong with that? I mean, you can see it as manipulation or you can just see it as like a really smart marketing campaign. I mean, I see it as manipulation. I see <laughs> I see it as like, a, it, it's part of this pattern of you know, Facebook carving us up into these echo chambers where we don't really get information from beyond what the algorithms say that, that we should like. It makes society less open and just like a worse place to live in. So is the problem that, is, is that true, like no matter what kind of information they're circulating? So to me, the story that I keep coming back to when I feel confused about what's evil and what's not so bad here is the story of this, this made-up story, this rape of a girl in Germany that seems to have really driven a lot of the um, rise of the right in Germany. And it really scared people, created this sort of immigrant, scary bad guy um, and really seemed to shape the election, even though it was not true. So that horrifies me. But I'm not sure if I feel the same way about true news stories merely because they're being served to different segments of the population. But I, I don't, I mean, I think they're part of the same thing, right? The reason that those either fake or half true news stories kind of, uh, you know, mobilize those kinds of groups is because they are served to specific audiences. And then you have this kind of in-group echo chamber effect where like people will get served a story, pass it to their friends who are of like minds, and it becomes a huge thing. It creates these these movements, you know, movements that you may like or you may not like, but it, it drives society to extremes generally. That's the part we should be worried about. So before we or in closing in this topic, I, I want to call out a wonderful Ross Douthat column. Is there any other kind, actually? And which linked to a really interesting National Review column, so, actually. Yeah, so Ross has this wonderful column where he said, what, if you want to think about the technology that elected Trump, the technology that elected Trump is television. He started with The Apprentice. The, the Apprentice made him credible. The appetite for his celebrity uh, was irresistible to TV bookers all over, and so they went 24-7. Anything he did brought him attention. That once he was the nominee, uh, the wall-to-wall -wall coverage of him drove his 
victory. And it wasn't, and so that whatever was happening in social media remained a kind of peripheral thing. Do you think that's I, right, I, Farhan? I thought that was a smart column. I, I would add one thing, which is, I think that one thing that Trump did well was he used social media in a way to influence TV. What's interesting about Trump's actual Twitter account is he's not very popular on Twitter for how, how, how popular you think he is. Like, um, Obama's tweets get a lot more engagement. Like, he um, doesn't get a lot of retweets, likes for how, for how popular you think he is. But the reason he uses Twitter is because that's where all the cable news people are. And so he tweets something, it gets on TV, he gets huge play on TV through Twitter. And so he found a way to, you know, use social media to kind of influence TV. Right. He directs the television coverage yeah. every single day, and but he doesn't have to answer for the batch of things he's saying because he's not actually on set, right? Right. So, so it's this combination of, you know, of Twitter and TV. Um, I mean, but... I do think he's right that, you know, TV probably played a much bigger role in, in the election than Twitter did or Facebook. But they're connected. It's all connected. <laughs> and not in a good way. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. So this weekend, my children and perhaps your children will be walking down to the mall in Washington, D.C. to participate in the March for Our Lives, which promises to be an enormous anti-gun violence, gun control rally, which was convened and organized after the Parkland massacre by the Parkland students, who are this extremely bold and wonderfully enthusiastic and brash and funny and energetic group that started speaking up after the death of their classmates. And they, these students appear to me to be perhaps avatars of a new social movement. At the same time, we have a string of terror bombings, which we, we don't know yet, but are perhaps politically motivated, that have um, killed, I can't remember how many, killed two. killed two and wounded others in Austin. And as I look around in all sorts of places... I am struck not merely by the amount of partisanship, of course, which has always been much noted, but the sort of ferment in all kinds of ways that we have, that we have chaos and dissatisfaction, that we have distrust of institutions reaching enormous levels. Um, we have huge impatience with old-timers like me and like you, Emily, not like you, Farhad, you're young. Old-timers like us who seek moderation and respect for institutions. Um, there's a hunger for new ways of living that people are engaging in. There's a sense that the American dream no longer works for people. And there's this enormous 
youth quake that is happening across with gun control, DACA, Black Lives Matter, whether it's Me Too, that is changing how people are thinking and acting. And so the question, I, and it's not just on the left, it's on the right too, that you, the alt-right and the, the, the fascism and what came in Charlottesville reflects that as a movement on the right. Uh, so my question is, are, is this 1967? Are we in 1967? If we are, what does that portend? And, and if we're not, you know, why is everything so chaotic? Um, yeah, so it's weird that you brought this up because it's something that, like, I got obsessed by last year and started reading. So um, last year was 1967. It's actually 1968. No, it was 19, last year was 66. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it, 63. I mean, the, the similar... So I started reading a lot of books about the 60s... I read this, so there, this Rick Perlstein book, um, Nixon Land, is great. And it traces this, you know, path from kind of the height of liberalism in 1965 to, to Nixon being elected. And, and it's a huge change in society that people weren't expecting. And it sort of happened here, you know, in the last decade where you had Obama to, to Trump, this, this shift that wasn't, you weren't expecting. The other similarity is like, media was changing a huge way. Like, TV changed politics completely in the 60s um, from, the, from the first presidential debate, but all the riots were on TV, um, and, and Nixon, like, ran his campaign in a, in a very uh, modern TV way in, in 68. Um, and we also have media changing completely now. So there are those superficial similarities. But, also, but when I started to think about it, it seems like the 60s were much worse. Like, they were... Or much better, much more dramatic. Well, let, right? let, but, well, are you but, in 60s I mean, envy? Go with worse. Okay. Well, I mean, worse, worse in the sense of, like, Lots of people were actually dying. Um, there was and, Vietnam. There, there was, was Vietnam. Vietnam. There were huge assassinations. <laughs> there Those were assassinations. Were there were riots, um, you know, every summer for several years, like in many cities. You know, you start to, like, obviously have to compare Nixon and Trump. And, like, I got a sense that Nixon was, like, Trump, but, like, super competent. Um, <laughs> and so... <laughs> Like, he, 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 like, really... I think that's so unfair, Nixon, but let's, we can bracket right, that. I really think that's I feel incredibly like unfair, Nixon. Nixon. The first part of, in the, you know, he, like, set out to do things and then, like, actually did them. The, like, he, he won he a He was, like, rest. a liberal compared to Trump, right? Compared to the Republicans in Congress. I mean, he did, right? Anyway. Well, but, like, he, you know, people, the liberals thought that he was evil, but that he, but he was, like successful in a way that like you you can you can look at Trump's year and a half and sort of at least if you're a liberal at least um you know be okay with the fact that like he hasn't like done a lot oh disagree he hasn't been that he hasn't been that successful sort of politically (laughs) I still disagree with that last part he's very unpopular like Nixon was very popular but when you look at how he what the federal agencies are doing wait let's not hold on let's not litigate that that is a totally separate issue we're talking about the 60s okay (laughs) so well so Emily what you were saying you were you were already arguing with Farhad's perception that was much worse well I wonder I mean I, I, th- I think I have late 60s envy in a way that's sort of silly because you're right absolutely about the violence and the way I, it seems to me not having been around for that that it really felt like society was teetering right and that we might lose the good things about America along with a lot of the bad things um, 
I wonder, though, if the similarity in a deep way right now, or maybe this is just me, is this sense again that we don't know if we're going to come out on the other side, if we're going to recognize ourselves, and whether that kind of fundamental uncertainty about the 1960s is what we're seeing in a different way now, where this partisan divide seems like it grows every day, and that the people who feel like that they're lot is declining, that their hegemony is disappearing out from under them. Um, If there's a kind of danger lurking there that is actually maybe related to the 60s and some of the ways in which people rejected the Vietnam War protesters or rejected the civil rights movement, but that it feels as on edge as it did then. That's what I keep going back and forth. Well, I think so. there's no capacity for organized group violence in the same way there was in the 60s. It's, I think the surveillance state makes it, there's a ton, we have a ton of violence and there's a ton of political violence that's occurring now, but it tends to be individual bad actors that are carrying it out, not organized groups. There's no weathermen of today yet. And I think it would be very hard to organize a weatherman of today um, because of the way we're so much better at surveilling people. Um, that's interesting. And, and I think that's, you know, that's largely to the good. But, but I, but we come from really quiescent political generation. Our, when I was in my 20s, there, I don't know what we protested. We protested we'd the ended, Iraq We'd war. ended apartheid. We had done that. Yeah. No, we protested the Iraq there was a, war. Yeah, but it was feeble. I mean, there was a, the protests yeah. were extremely feeble. And yeah. to see, we haven't had real youth movement protests in this country for really since, you know, for 50 years, for 45 years. And to see this springing up in all these different ways, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's the DACA protests, whether it's the Parkland kids, the sense that they, that they are harnessing media in new ways and harnessing organizational principles in new ways is fascinating. And I, it's going to be amazing if they pull something off. Well, and if you think of it generationally, too, so the boomers were obviously part of the 60s fomenting, right? But now we look back on what they've done since then, and maybe our generation, too, and it looks like the worst generation, right? The generation that (laughs) has gotten us into this enormous mess. And so, in a sense, there's this, like, historical parallel where... The, the kids, the youth, are playing that same role. And when they talk about how, like, you're going to fail in the end because we're going to outlive you, they're right. And it actually feels like it makes sense, too. I mean, don't you think... And we didn't talk about this in the last segment, but all these social movements seem, you know, the other side of the coin of, of how terrible, perhaps, social media is. Like, these social movements are driven by... or the the organizational power that you get from social media has allowed, you know, from the very start of the Trump administration, the resistance, I mean, the Women's March, all of this stuff happened because people quickly organized on social media. And um, I think that's, uh, you know, the other side of the delete Facebook campaign. Like, you can get these huge social movements um, and could perhaps affect real change, and things are happening faster because, you know, we have the technology to do it. Right. My sense of the 60s, and again, I didn't, lived through it, was that the Vietnam protests were really the core of it. And that was because kids did not want to die. Like, people didn't want to die. And so once the draft was gone, and once Vietnam started to wind down, the, the energy dissipated. And I wonder if there's an equivalent... I mean, I think that the DACA, the DACA folks who are going to lose their, their life in America are, I, are, I think, have that... Motivation, but I'm not sure that the other 
that the other movements have as much of the kind of urgency that Vietnam did, and therefore I don't know whether they can last. I mean, one of the things about social media is that it allows you to organize quickly, but it doesn't necessarily allow well, you to, to persist. I mean, I, I think you can argue, I mean, I'm not sure, but I think you can argue that the Me Too movement wouldn't have spread so quickly, and like it had real-world effects, even though there, I don't, there haven't been marches, but it's had real-world effects at people's jobs around the country. That's actually happened, and I don't think it would have happened if you know, Facebook and Twitter weren't around. There, you would have had some of the early reporting on it, but then it spiraled out into this culture-wide phenomenon um, you know, that actually had effects. I think you know, those kinds of things are actually changing society. So does that democratizing positive effect of social media help explain why we don't have anyone like the three leaders who we lost in the 60s? So Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Robert F. Kennedy, these figures who seem to offer this other path who we, you know, I still mourn like that road we didn't take because of their deaths. There is nobody like that, right? I mean, Black Lives Matter is famously tried to be a kind of leaderless organization in which lots of people take a role, but nobody becomes this totemic figure. Is that a phenomenon of the social media era? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it, it was super interesting to me after, um, after Trump was inaugurated and he did the immigration executive order, people immediately rushed to airports to start protesting and nobody really was the leader of that. Yeah, that happened. was incredible watching that like from the side of lawyers. The, even the lawyers who were rushing to the airports to actually do stuff, there was nobody in charge. It was right. really true. It, and, you know, that, I, I think that's right. Like you can have all of these, you can have millions of people organizing and, you know, knitting hats and doing doing real work for protest work, uh, marching, and, and nobody's sort of in charge of it because it's, you know, like the hashtag is in charge in some sense. They can't assassinate the hashtag. The 60s ended, <laughs> the 60s ended in some ways because the, the, the left won, because Nixon was driven from office, Vietnam War ended eventually, the culture opened up to African Americans and women in new ways that it hadn't. Uh, the the Congress restrained the CIA. Um, there was civil rights laws were passed. The political that the combination and and we also got all that great music and we got the pill and people had a lot more sex and there was and there were concerts and stuff and so so it it it, it appeared that the that sort of a total victory for the force of the left, in part enabled by the culture shifting and in part enabled by politics shifting. What I am unclear about is I don't know that our political system has the capacity to respond to these movements in the way that the political system in the 60s and 70s still did. And you don't you think that because of the sclerotic nature of Congress, because of gerrymandering, because it just seems so th- like the wave it would take. Well, to- I think the com- yeah. So the sorry the com- no, no, the combination I- of the sclerotic nature of Congress, um, uh, the overpowered executive, the executive has too much power, and the hyperpartisanship. Most of all, the hyperpartisanship, which means that nobody ever gets a like a complete victory in Washington anymore. No one gets any victory. It's just like you limp from next to next. Unless there is just a complete wash through Congress where Democrats really totally take the House and then in 2020 take the Senate and the presidency and, and sweep out everything up. I just don't see how the political change... These political institutions have been so damaged and so eroded that I'm not sure the 
that politics can respond to these movements. It's super, it's interesting that like, you know, in 1968, people were protesting at the Democratic Convention. Today, people protest like brands. You know, people are going to uh, organize for the midterms, but you don't, you don't really expect that democratic institutions are going to respond to you. And so that's why people are, you know, on Facebook and, and, and Twitter, like, calling on companies to do something about the NRA, uh, calling on, you know, companies to do something about kind of every issue that comes up because, like, corporations have become, like, more powerful institutions in our lives than, than uh you know, government. You know, the other thing that we should bring up here is campaign finance laws. So out of the 60s, we got campaign finance reform and some sense of limiting the influence of wealthy people and corporations and organizations. We didn't have all this soft and dark money flowing in. And I think when you, you know, why is it that people don't expect their government to be responsive? Some of it is that they can see it takes many millions of dollars to run for office or to get the ear of people who are running for office. And I think there is a legitimate sense that the democracy is like not in our hands in the same direct way. Right. All right. One, actually one final point, which is that, uh, because I think most of our audience is on the left and probably most of your sympathies are on the left that failing to recognize that this is a, really quite powerful on the right, that the, that the kind of performance art political theater that's being practiced on the right by Milo Yiannopoulos and the, the alt-right uh, fascist people is very much you know, derived from the same... It's in the tradition. same spirit. It's in the same tradition, and the same. It's the the same kind of provocations. I mean, I think I think Milo is like as close to Abby Hoffman in his in his performance art as as, uh, as anyway. anything else. Let's go to cocktail chatter when uh, you're having uh, a kombucha cocktail of some sort <laughs> later this evening, Emily. What will you be chattering to? your dinner companions about me and Farhad, who would be your dinner companions. <laughs> right, I think I will go on about this, about this at dinner. So I have been marveling, marveling this week and last at this trial going on in Kansas. And the adversaries are the ACLU, which sued Chris Kobach, the Secretary of State of Kansas, over his attempt to require proof of citizenship to vote. And Chris Kobach himself, who at this point, it seems made, it seems clear that he made an extremely foolhardy move to decide to litigate this case. He has just been eviscerated. And, you know, if you follow the kind of vote, voter fraud wars, this is just such an incredible victory for the left and for sanity and for the ACLU. I kind of can't believe it, how well it's gone. So what happened? First of all, Chris Kobach tried to break, like, basic rules of evidence, got the judge to say to him, like, that's evidence 101. You can't do that. Then um, he put Hans von Spakovsky, whose name I will not attempt to say again, on the stand. This is one of his main allies in um, promoting the myth of voter fraud. Dale Ho, the ACLU lawyer, got von Spakovsky. Sometimes I call him Hans, but we're not really friends. Um, He got him to admit on the stand that he could not name a single election that had been determined by non-citizens voters. Then the researcher who was the font of the 
bullshit complaint that millions of people could have voted in 2016 explained just how bullshit that was. Said that he had come up with a number of, of non-citizen votings by just like deciding that people with Hispanic-sounding surnames weren't citizens. I mean, it was unreal. There's more. At the end of it, um, Dale Ho said that the supposed iceberg of voter fraud that um, Kobach claims is actually an ice cube. And he might have even said an ice chip. It just is amazing how when you have to go to court and build a factual record and actually, you know, say things under oath, suddenly lies really seem to disappear. So anyway, it's been an amazing week of trial. Wasn't there a moment in that trial where they asked the expert, you know, how would you classify the name Muguruza? (laughs) And he said, I classified it as foreign. And then they said, you know, that's the name of a federal judge who sits in this courthouse. Great! Which of, and, but yet, of course, that would be true because there are so many people, obviously, with foreign-sounding names who are citizens and who live here anyway. It's just really been amazing. And I thank Chris Kobach for having put himself um, on display for the rest of us. Farhad, what is your chatter? <laughs> Farhad Manju. Um, At least we have three Jews up here. Oh! <laughs> Yes. Uh, we talked about, we've been talking about how, um, how terrible uh, the internet and digital media is. But I wanted to recommend, and you were talking about people going back to the land. So I started a new hobby recently, which I thought would be like a completely uh, analog hobby, which is pottery. Like I, I took a pottery class, and it's amazing because you. With a wheel. With a wheel, because you can't look at your phone at all, because your hands are messy. And um, the you moment destroy it immediately. Yeah, the moment you take your attention off of this thing and think about anything else and like look at a notification, you've destroyed your thing. So it's great. But then I discovered that actually, what really helps you do pottery is looking at a lot of YouTube videos about pottery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and and this has actually been a pattern for me for a while. Like. YouTube is extremely helpful in like helping you take up new hobbies. Um, if you're a cook, like watching YouTube videos about people cooking is just like the most pleasant and like um, relaxing thing. Yeah, um, and so I really recommend taking up a, a non-digital hobby, but then pairing it with like uh, you know YouTube. Yeah. So my chatter uh, is it's slightly log rolling. It's a, it's because it's Atlas Obscura based. It comes out of a feature that a colleague of mine, Jessica Hester, has been doing. There are not a lot of sports fans at Atlas Obscura, so we don't do a March Madness. But, so we decided to do... Um, but we are obsessed with the, the interesting inventions and history, and, and so we're doing something called Mundane Madness. Um, <laughs> and we started with a Sweet 16, and the idea is to find the, what is the mundane invention that has been that is most valuable, and we're doing it as a bracket. So we had, for example, string versus zip tie was one early round, paper clip versus binder clip, glass versus paper, sewer versus roundabout. And it's really interesting. And so I want to do a little test with the audience on some of these. So you, you vote by voice. I'll, give you, I'll tell you the two first, and then we'll, we'll do, do a little vote. So the, so the first matchup is... Um, going to be kitty litter versus toilet paper. So make noise for what you think is going to be more valuable. Do you think it's kitty litter? <laughs> toilet paper. Okay, yes. All right, next is going to be string versus zip tie. So string. Zip tie. 
Okay, next. The zip tie means twisty tie. No, um, zip tie is the one that sort of locks. Yeah. It's a oh, nice lock, plastic lock. I don't lock. use those at all. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Like ever in my life. All right. Uh, <laughs> paper clip versus binder clip. Paper clip. <laughs> binder clip. <laughs> yeah. Very, very 50 50. Yeah, the, okay. the ones you squeeze and open up. You can hold more stuff with it. I need like an instructional YouTube yeah. video to take this quiz. All right, now we're, getting to, now we're getting to some of the hot ones here. Okay. So, sewer versus roundabout. So, sewer. Yeah. Roundabout. I hate roundabouts. So, here's the crazy thing roundabout almost won. It's insane. Sewage is sewers are like the most important invention in human history. Forever, yeah. I like roundabouts. They're convenient, but I would, you know, sewers are way better. I hate them. All right, right. and then finally, the last one we'll do: um, glass versus paper. Glass. Paper. Again, that was super close. Glass huh. almost beat paper. Which really? Is I feel like we could totally crazy. make do without glass. Well, you wear glasses. I mean... I don't huh. need to. I can get... you. Neither of you guys is wearing paper glasses. Is you not, both have bad eyesight. Yeah, paper really. is only the way human history... But if you don't have glasses... All of human invention was stored... <laughs> all, all of human invention was stored you without glasses. glasses. You can't read right, anything You can't read paper. it without... <laughs> <laughs> Round two of the voting goes through Sunday. I can read it. All right. <laughs> anyway, you guys all had the... You voted so correctly. So now Namely, does, like, can... string go up against sewer? Yeah. So, okay. So I think the fi- it's pretty clear the final is going to be sewer versus paper. Ah. So let's do that. Actually, let's, let's run sewer that. Sewer okay. versus sewer paper. Sewer versus paper. All right. Sewer. Yeah. Paper. Sewage. Sewer wins. Yay. Phew. Although there are, there are whole societies where people live without sewers, but very few that live and without paper. And it goes poorly for them and they get dysentery. Yeah. That's our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Rode. Faith Smith put on this Portland Live show. Thank you very much to Revolution Hall for hosting us. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest for Emily Bazelon and the delightful Farhad Manju, who Wally pipped his way into our hearts. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Get tickets to our St. Louis show on May 2nd at slate.com/live. Hey, Gabfest listeners! I want to tell you about a new Slate project. The right to vote is a building block of our democracy. So in 2018, Slate's journalists will be offering expanded coverage of voting rights. They'll be investigating gerrymandering and voter suppression, studying key legislative battles and court cases on the state and federal levels. They'll also offer new tools to help readers understand how the electoral sausage gets made. We're asking our readers and listeners to help fund our coverage. Find out how you can support this work today at slate.com slash voting rights. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. 
Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.